Welcome to the Werewolf Den, where we do a deep dive into the core concepts and principles behind White Wolf's Werewolf the Apocalypse. I'm Amelin. And I am Ryan. Welcome back. So today we are going to be continuing with our runner-up in the poll, Rite of the Cairn Build. Rite of the Cairn Build is one of those quintessential werewolf things, kind of like with Rite of the Pack Totem. Rite of the Cairn Build just feels like something where whenever I make a werewolf character, I kind of always anticipate this coming up at some point in time. It's like fighting a dragon in Dungeons and Dragons. If you're playing a werewolf, you're probably going to have something to do with defending a cairn, creating a cairn, something. Cairns are important. Same with my experience as well. 90% of the games, you either built a cairn, found lost cairns, or did something to protect a major siege on an existing cairn. Like- yeah. And again, part of Werewolf's Beauty, this is something that actually the players do this thing. You can start the game off with right of the cairn build. You can You can have this as an ambition and sort of set the tone that the game will at some point deal with this topic and so really dig that about it one common thing that i know you and i talk about pretty regularly is starting a game where right of the cairn build has happened but most everyone has died and that's how we get rid of all of our npcs in a larp game and just leave players to fill all those roles yeah open the door for people to step in right so it's a huge thing that pretty much is quintessential to the environment of the game mm-hmm Unlike Rite of the Pack Totem, Rite of the Cairn Build is something that can't just be done in a session. And yeah, Rite of the Totem is something that does take some planning. But Cairn Building is so much more. This is an apex moment within the overall chronicle. This is the defense of Helm's Deep. This is super significant, and you're going to spend a lot of time building up to that. Building the drama and the suspense and the intensity, and then the actual conduction is going to take, you know, a lot of time and energy. So it's not something that's done in just one instance. There's a lot of milk that you can get out of this cow. And just the setup alone, when I did this in the LARP, this is something that took months and months of actual in-game and real-world time. Because in the LARP, one week in the LARP is one week in the real world. It's all mirrored chronologically. And I want to say preparation started about in September... And then the construction of the cairn took place in April. And so we had seven months of people doing legwork, appeasing spirits, thinking up strategies, deciding on where to build it and who's going to build it. There's so much that goes into this one idea. And the biggest thing of all, building allies amongst the seps, strategically placing who's going to be where, what is everybody going to do, where does everyone's strengths lie, and building allies outside of the werewolf community itself. Building up those kinfolk. What are those kinfolk going to do? Are they going to help? Of course they're going to help because they're kinfolk and that's what they do. Mm -hmm. But how are they going to contribute? Are they going to be perched up as snipers or are they going to be recessed back and going to be part of like a healing tent or something like that? Then there's, of course, Farah. You can very easily incorporate Farah into your game. Is there a local Farah community that the werewolves are aware of that they can reach out to and be like, hey, let's mend some bridges and you can get some excellent storytelling out of that. Mm -hmm. But I guess the first thing we should talk about is location. And within the LARP, 
you know, my LARP took place within the city of Chicago. And so a lot of players were from a, a small cornfield, like an hour's drive west of Chicago. So, but we didn't live there. Everyone within the game was aware of Chicago and, and what it held. And so the players started the game, obviously, with ideas of what might be a cairn or what, what might be a potential spot for a cairn and things of this sort. And then I was able to, over the months, sort of feed in ideas of, well, this is a significant place and this place has a lot of spiritual energy and it's it's kind of bad but there's energy there and you could spin it and cleanse it kind of stuff and so there was a lot of time to scope out the landscape and find what might work and of course if a player is like i really want to do this they can push in that direction but since it was a larp you know you have a lot of different voices that all get a say and so there was a lot of time to sort of figure it out but eventually the site that we settled on was graceland cemetery and again one of the great things about white wolf setting in the real world is that I and my narrators were able to go out to Graceland Cemetery. We took a day off, went to Chicago, and we went to the actual site. And if you can do that, awesome. Because you can get a sense of, well, there are brick walls with a spiked perimeter on top of it. That's a really good defensive structure. Just happens to be there already. You can get a bead of where the high ground is, what places might be vulnerable, what tombs are the most significant or have the most ghost stories about them. I remember one player was playing a Fianna and she brought in a book of Haunted Illinois. And of course, Graceland Cemetery had a few sites within the book. Whether they're true or not, doesn't matter. In the Umbra, that has a reflection. Ghost Hunters is uh, relevant in the Umbra. Not for the right reasons, but they're still relevant, right? <laughs> So you have all of these people finding all of these things that they care about here. And even if they can't go out there, they can pull up a Google Maps and check it out that way. They can get a sense of what's there and what's in the surrounding area. We were able to tell, you know, well, the L train runs adjacent to it. And so it's got connection to the rest of the city. And there are these buildings and those might be apartment complexes and do a Google search and yep, check it out. People live there. So you can buy out a floor of that building and uh, put your kinfolk there if you want. All sorts of stuff you can engage with in that regard. And so just the deciding on a location is an event in and of itself and sort of discovering all the little things that could be hidden in there. And again, as a storyteller, I didn't have to do most of this work. I had players coming to me with Haunted Illinois books and going, hey, check this out. Cool. Awesome. There is a little bit more legwork involved with doing it as a tabletop storyteller. But even so then, you still have plenty of spots where you can allow for that interpretation and allow for the players to come in and be like, hey, what about this instead? When I built the Lego city that is my Scotland by night, I had multiple sites in mind for potential cairn sites should my players come to me and be like, hey, this museum, could this potentially be a cairn site? It's got a lot of ritual significance. Hey, this park, could this be a cairn site? It's got a lot of ritual significance. Ryan's got a mountain. Hey, this mountain, could this be a cairn site? It's far away from all the people bugging me. I think it's great. <laughs> but yeah, don't skirt on the choosing of a location. Now that's something that you obviously have to sort of course correct if you're doing like a lost cairn or something that's pre-established. But that should also mean that you as the storyteller have sort of prepared for that. And so you have all sorts of ideas on how to get people hooked. You know the tombs that are haunted within that cemetery. You know all the little Easter eggs and what your characters are into, what the various pack members like. And so you can find all sorts of ways to get them 
to care about this location. Mm -hmm. Speaking then, since you brought it up, of lost cairns, we did get a very interesting question in the comments of our last video Mm -hmm. regarding working with fallow cairns. And the word choice of fallow is an interesting word choice for that. Yeah. Because... Fallow does not necessarily mean lost. And there is a very specific tips that we can give for lost cairns. Because that means, oh, you got to do cleansings and you got to purge the worm. You got to do all sorts of battles. And there's all sorts of things that go into that. Fallow, though, that's like a temporary thing. Why is it fallow? Is it fallow because the spirit that occupies it is seasonal? Is it fallow because the werewolves that all tended the sep died off and so nobody has been there? That first one was my impression with it. Like when I think of fallow, I think of a, a you know agricultural field where you have left this fallow so that the soil can sort of re-enrich itself and you can get a better harvest next time. That's what a moot is. A cairn gets its nourishment from moots. So when I hear a fallow cairn, I think of a, a cairn of spring where it's only really a cairn during springtime or maybe during an unseasonably cool week in summer or an unseasonably warm week in winter. Otherwise, it's slumbering because it's not springy. And these can definitely be a thing. But since you brought it up in the notion of building a cairn, that gives us the impression, at least to me, that it's fallow because the previous set tending to it died out, perhaps in a great war, but nobody has necessarily reclaimed it. And if this is not what you actually meant, then please correct us. But if that's the case, then... Like my thought on the subject is, if the cairn is alive, do a moot. If the mm-hmm. cairn is dead, do a rite of cairn build. If it's fallow, then a spirit quest, maybe an umbral quest to appease the spirit of the cairn or to, you know, convince it to reawaken, something of that sort. I don't see a lot of middle ground between yeah, the moot I can... and the rite of the cairn build kind of thing. Yeah, I can very much see a fallow cairn turning into a spirit quest to find the spirit that has been lost from it, but still has its ties. Is the spirit like perhaps broken up into smaller pieces? There's all sorts of different questions that can be used with the specific use of the word fallow. And mm-hmm. it it's an awesome use. Like, I love the idea. I had never actually considered the notion of a seasonal cairn. Yeah, because it made us think of it in a completely new light. Mm-hmm. And that's a cool idea. Oh, you have an opening cairn to awaken the cairn when spring comes in. And then a closing moot for like, oh, the season has ended. And yeah. it's time for the cairn to go back to sleep. And we wish you a good rest or something like that. And just all sorts of weird ideas. Like, oh, our cairn is dedicated to the almighty dollar. Is it a, you know, is the stock market climbing? Our, our cairn is awake. Is the stock market in decline? Are we in an economic recession? Oh, there goes our cairn. Like... <laughs> I can see all sorts of interesting ways to sort of spin that, where it's not that the cairn is unhealthy, mm-hmm. it's just that the cairn is reacting mm-hmm. to the real world and to spiritual ideas that are manifesting in the Umbra. Yeah. I think that's really cool. Uh, with that, the big thing comes down to what sort of spirit are you using to indicate the fallowness of this cairn? What sort of spirit occupied it originally? Because I think that's going to really affect that. Sorry if it's a very vague answer, 
but hopefully it gives you some ideas to work with. And honestly, the idea of a fallow cairn, a cairn that sleeps, was such a cool notion to us that we just kind of wanted to share it with everyone else. Yeah. So back to our original train of thought, I guess. <laughs> um, so yeah, once you've done the location scoping, then you have the planning and the plotting. And again, this is something where you as a, a pack and as a sept are throwing everything you've got. You know, you're, you're not holding anything back with a Cairn build. It is 100%. We are firing on all cylinders. Everything we've got, we're throwing at this. Because one of the cool things about a Rite of the Cairn build is that the worm knows. And so everything of the worm is coming. If it's BSDs, they know what's happening. If it's the night crew at McDonald's, they don't know what's happening, but they're showing up anyway, confused and scared. Like, you get to throw everything at this. And so the players have to have a plan. You can't just decide to do this one day. And in my LARP, this generated tons of ideas. And the central one that came up was some people had the idea to appease a spirit of, of winter. And when I say winter, I mean like horrible Midwestern winter. Hoary bearded, riddled with frostbite. Why do we live in this godforsaken area winter? And so like I said, planning on this started in September. And for about six months, the Sept performed a chiminage. At every monthly gathering, they would sacrifice themselves in the Umbra to winter's ravages. So that way when this blizzard comes, old man winter knows that you've borne your scars of this and so you can still move around and operate without dying whereas other people who are unsheltered are, are very vulnerable but then there's the flip side we had a player who was playing a pregnant character mm -hmm. and she reacted in a very sane way of being like no I am with child. I cannot do this or I endanger my child. Yeah. And so there was controversy over that. And it's that's good controversy, right? Do you threaten the contentment of this spirit and destroy the bargain? Do you harm what is certainly going to be a kinfolk and maybe Garu? What's the right answer? There is no right answer, right? And so a lot of great drama came from that. We had bonars that were concerned about the homeless population because blizzards kill the homeless. And this is going to be a blizzard for the ages, like a once in a millennium kind of blizzard. So people are gonna die. And so you have players who are trying to maintain their status as the good guys who are reinforcing homeless shelters and the infrastructure to transport them because this blizzard is going to come out of nowhere. And the systems of bureaucracy have to be ready to respond quickly because plow fleets are going to get disabled for this whole thing to work. You, you've got to be looking out for these people. And of course, you know, you're finding blind spots as well where people don't care about those who could be hurt and the worm is using that to its advantage. So as a storyteller, you've just got a ton of options to sort of work with what players are coming up with. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one of those things where you can just kind of continue to build anticipation if you're doing it in a tabletop setting. As they are going through all of this preparatory work, you can make sessions out of, hey, this is a consequence of what's happening in your preparations. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like Emelyn said previously, this is also an opportunity to bring in every NPC you've got. You know, in my LARP, 
everyone within the sept was a player. So uh, we drew on Kinfolk and we drew on the Pharah. And with Kinfolk, it was kind of nice because since it was a, a largely player-driven LARP, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to sort of generate this stuff on my own. If you had Kinfolk and you didn't use them, they were just dots on your sheet and that's all they would ever be because I'm a slave to the board. But even players who never paid attention to their kinfolk were now thinking like, all right, how can I utilize them? And hey, I've got to talk to these people now. I haven't talked to you in seven months. Like, who are you again? What are your thoughts on this kind of stuff? And figuring out how to use them, how to motivate them and what they can do, what they can contribute. You know, are they proficient in firearms? Can you rent out an apartment, put them in that, and they can provide some covering fire during the fight? Uh, are they medically trained? Are they brave? Can they just run supplies between, you know, your sort of headquarters or where you're conducting the ritual. All sorts of stuff that they can do to sort of shore up numbers. And just that alone can generate a lot of sessions of content for you. Dealing with the Pharah, you know, this was something I did more because it was a LARP. But yeah, having these other relationships where it's like, all right, you know of these people out here, you've met this person or that person, you've met that Ratkin in sewers. Like, do you want to try and get them on board? Do you want to try and, you know, ensure that they're not just going to show up to steal the cairn from you or just, you know, kneecap you from behind because you're dicks and the war of rage or whatever? Again, so much content you can draw from this one singular right. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where there's so many different types of things that you can do. Building those allegiances, making those preparations, prepping the grounds, appeasing the spirits, finding potential enemies that could show up. And it's like, do we take care of them now or are they harmless enough that we don't really need to worry about them? Mm-hmm. All of that sort of work gives dynamic for every possible player. One of the things in Ryan's LARP that we ended up doing was all of the Galliards got together and just did a big old moot song, a big old conjoined moot song. And like, we actually did a moot song where we like, we danced and we sang and there was a whole stage production to the thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a necessary step, but it's an awesome step. You can just put it if you want to, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has a role they can play with building a cairn. Yeah. The last thing I'll say in the preparation is to sort of set the tone. And, you know, I alluded to, to Helm's Deep before, and I think that's a great example where I think that film did a phenomenal job of sort of setting this impending tension. For this moment, this dread. Moments where people are, are, you know, your kinfolk are given guns and maybe they've never fired a gun in their life. Role play that moment out with your players. They're freaking combat gods just by virtue of being able to shift into Krenos. And even they should feel afraid because the worm's bringing everything it's got. If you're just a kinfolk with a 9mm, oh god, that's gotta be terrifying. So let the players know that. Let them see that. And hopefully, you know, it'll engender a better respect for the kinfolk. But it's a great opportunity to really roleplay all these different dynamics that kind of won't get explored outside of a Rite of the Cairn building, I feel. Now, once the preparatory work is done, that's when you've got the fight. And I think I did a pretty good job with running this in a LARP. Combats and LARPs are, are never clean. They're always... Awful. But I had a few narrators on my staff at the time, and all of them had characters because no one wanted to be a, a straight, full, 100% narrator. To be fair, I was a kinfolk, but... <laughs> <laughs> you started off as a player. I did. Yeah. But I also had players who didn't want to engage in a four-hour long mass combat, which was awesome. 
because they were willing to be narrators for me. And within the set, I wanted to have a narrator for every pack. Every group of players should have one narrator to deal with that. I think we had five packs. So we just came up with like a pentagram where we have north, south, east, west, and eh, kind of northeast um, divisions, as well as uh, the right master conducting the right at the center and any theurges or galliards that didn't want to take part in the fight. They're there helping to conduct the ritual. Uh, oh, on that topic, what I did since that's like 50 plus rolls is, you know, this was a LARP where it's rock, paper, scissors. I just had the player submit, throw me 50 chops, tell me rock, paper, scissors, 50 times, and hand that to my narrator. I am then going to give that narrator my list of rock, paper, scissors, 50 times, and give that to the narrator. And that way we'll know how many wins did you get, how many successes, you know. Instead of rolling dice 50 times and taking up an hour of everyone's time, do it before game. So that way you can spend time actually like conducting the drama and building the tension. Because otherwise you're going to have a lot of rolls that don't have a back and forth. It's just sort of, I'm rolling 5,000 dice. Let's count the numbers. Ugh. Do that ahead of time. I think that's probably the best idea I had. But yeah, the right master at the center, who's sort of, this is the, the goalpost. You need to protect this. And so while he wasn't engaged in any of the drama directly, I didn't give him the results of his chops until afterwards, and I broke the combats down into waves. And so every wave would have a different group of antagonists rolling up on each of these five quadrants, right? Five packs. And I scaled them up and down. Sometimes the West is going to get a Nexus crawler and the East is going to get the night shift at the McDonald's who don't understand what's going on. They just put down their buns and took off their gloves and walked out into a blizzard and now they're slowly dying but they can't stop walking to the cemetery and they don't know what's going on and so each of these waves is happening chronologically i was never with one pack on wave two while another pack is on wave one because that would disrupt a sense of unity and all in this togetherness each of these waves happens at the same time and if one pack is able to clear the house then they can go over to the refreshment table and grab some snacks or hit the restroom and the other pack is going to keep fighting it out. And I honestly think that worked really well. I think that when one pack was taking up a lot of time, it actually sort of built the drama because players were worried like, oh shit, is that pack in the north like going to survive? That looks pretty bad. And so I don't think that at any point in time it sort of drug itself out too long working in these waves and then at the end of every wave i would give an account of what's on the horizon like oh from the south now you see a nexus crawler showing up that could be an issue i would report to the right master like this is what you're seeing because you've got the best perception of how everyone's doing you know who's wounded who's dead who's kicking ass if someone is broken through that's going to become a problem for you because you've got to keep conducting this ritual so even though the right master wasn't in the thick of it that drama was still central to their existence and they didn't feel left out of what was happening. Bringing all of this up then, you mentioned one pack getting like potentially a Nexus crawler while the other pack gets a bunch of McDonald's bros. This is a excellent opportunity where if you came up with an encounter that your players just did not pick up, they just did not follow that quest, they did not follow that storyline, but it's like, man, I had this awesome encounter. I had this awesome enemy that I really wanted to throw at them. This is a nice time to just empty your little folder your weapons of- chest. Yeah, your yeah. little folder of weapons chest. Yeah. 
when Ryan ran his LARP, again, I was one of the narrators for that. And one of the enemies that I ended up dropping on the players was this Fae, this Sheed, who just showed up, didn't know why they were there, but they showed up and they were like, this is really cool. I want this, but I don't want to fight all of that. I challenge you to a duel. And I had players that flipped out and were so excited because it's like honorable combat in this fight and they had so much fun with it but then it created drama and tension because other players were like what are you doing we got people dying over there why are you doing this just rompa stomp him and it creates that sort of tension with maintaining that breath when you're building tension in your game you can't actually build tension by just chronic and it's going and it's getting worse and it's going and it's going and it's it's going. If it's just a straight line into hell, you're not building tension. You're just beating your players up and it's not going to feel tense and exciting. It's going to feel like a slog. Yeah, it's an endless combat at that point. That's what I think worked well about the wave structure because at the end of every wave, it was like, all right, here's your chance to reload your gun. Here is your chance to perform others' touch. Here is your chance to assess how your fellows are doing. It gave everyone a chance to sort of relax for a moment. We're not in combat right now. And of course, you can narrate this in all sorts of ways. And in my LARP, it was, well, the blizzards, you know, really hammering down right now. You can see there's some black spiral dancers, you know, three blocks down that are rearing to come. But right now it's it's just ice traveling horizontally. It is impossible for them to move. And so you can't hurt them, but they can't hurt you right now. This is your chance to talk to your fellows, to heal your allies, to, you know, bolster your kinfolk who are terrified of what's going on. You know, in other systems or in other settings where you don't have a blizzard, you could say that the kinfolk who you posted up are now, you know, laying down a stray of bullets to give you a chance to recollect yourself. Mm-hmm. Whatever reason you want to give for them coming up, maybe they're just slow moving attacks and they have a minute to rest. They see the doom on the horizon, but that doom's walking real slow. So let's take a minute. Let's collect ourselves and let's prepare for this. Mm-hmm. By breaking the tension, you actually maintain it. Because it turns into a steady climb up. By having that up and down and that relief, people get that sense of building excitement during the points of relief. And then they get to experience the scary tension when the combat comes. And then when you have that fluctuating level of difficulty throughout your waves, then it turns into, when's my turn going to come? When's the axe coming down? When's the nexus crawler coming for me? Yeah. And having those breaks in the waves gave more options for kind of tactical thinking. If one segment of the the game just got hammered by something brutal, then maybe you want your kinfolk to aim their guns at the enemies attacking from that direction instead. So, or maybe, you know, you want to send one of your packmates over to the south because they just got beaten up and they need some reinforcements. You know, I don't advise splitting up packs, but you can split up some of your resources like the kinfolks, like I said. So it's a great way to sort of allow people to think about stuff. If you have more tactically minded players, this is this is steak and potatoes for them. This is steak and potatoes for me. I love this kind of stuff in games. And so that's incredibly clutch. And remember always to be reinforcing that role play throughout this time. I liked to include ideas where if there's a pack that you don't like and you see them get hammered, you as a storyteller should, you know, tell the players that. Let them know that those guys just got wrecked. And maybe you want to give them that choice of, do you want to take advantage of that? Or if they're friends, right, do you want to reinforce them 
and abandon your post or, you know, divert some of your resources to them to help them because it might mean that the worm breaks through on your watch. But it could also mean that some of your friends and allies are going to die. And if the North gets breached and your right master gets killed, but you hold the West, does it really matter anyway? There's all sorts of great opportunities for real, interesting, difficult choices that have that roleplay contingent. If, uh, that dick who you think is worm-tainted, if his pack just got wrecked, do you just want to shoot him? No one's going to notice. You can just kill him. Like, give players choices like that so that there's something else to engage them outside of rolling another dex plus brawl check. Another dex plus brawl check. There's a lot of great opportunity within the fight itself. It is one of those things where if you're... A lot of this advice that we've given is mostly complicit to tabletop versus LARP with the whole the wave system, the fluctuating, the tension, all of that works equally well with both LARP and tabletop. The biggest difference between the two is how many players you have to have managed within that setting. And when you're in a tabletop, you can basically have one of two setups then. You can have the, we are low ranking and this isn't our territory, but we're helping and we're contributing. And so we're holding off this point. You can have supplies being run through their territory and be like, somebody's running supplies because somebody else needs reinforcements. Do you give some of your supplies up to help further bolster that? Or do you just not like them? Maybe you're like, no, we need those supplies here. Give them options for affecting these other regions or what's going on in these other areas in those moments of breath so that they can feel like they're not just staking themselves out in a single spot. And then if they're higher rank, well, now they can be the big guys that are calling the shots from the area. You got your worm foe of an Arun pointing and dictating where all of the other Arun should be. You got your Thayerge, who is actually leading the right. You got your Galliard, who is calling to the spirits and trying to do their best to pay the ultimate chiminage to them. You got your Ragabash, who are running fallow and setting traps and doing all sorts of different things to try to slow the worm down. Mm -hmm. It's all about giving your players as much different types of things to do throughout this process is really what it comes down to. If your game is just one giant combat session, it's boring. Yeah. Another thing I would advise is to kind of, I mean, this is a siege, right? This is absolutely a siege. And so quantifying the resources that you have is very, very useful. Within my LARP, what I did with the alliances was if you make an alliance with someone and these were all done by packs, an individual pack would create an alliance. And that alliance will manifest in a one-off effect. The only one I can remember is that I had this fey creature that was inspired by Anglo-Saxon elves that, like, make your cows sick in, you know, 1000 CE. Like, that sort of weird fey spirit. And one pack had befriended it. And so the power that I gave them was a one-shot thing where this weird fey spirit has... A friendship, you know, in a face sense, with like this Arthurian kind of dragon. And this dragon will show up, but it's going to kill whatever you're fighting at the time. But then you've got to fight the dragon. Like, it's just going to smog everything, and you're going to have to stop it. So... It was a one-off thing that this pack could call on. They could call it on someone else, right? 
if that pack they hate is just fighting a bunch of McDonald's employees, you can smog those McDonald's employees and then that pack's going to fight a fucking dragon. But it was a one-off or limited use resource that they were aware of. And so it gave them another interesting choice in between just rolling decks and brawl, like I said. And you can quantify this as you've bought so many rounds of ammunition for your kinfolk. So if you're doing this as a tabletop, you can say, all right, based on the work you've done to supply them and motivate them, this is what they'll provide you. They will provide you with three breaks in the wave or what have you. Give them resources that they can call on to benefit themselves or others within the sept or to hinder others within the set. Give them those interesting choices, but make them limited. This isn't something you can do all the time. It's not an endless resource. It can run out. And that's another interesting choice within a Cairn build, is you don't know how many enemies are going to be coming. You can break a actual right of the Cairn build up into multiple sessions, so your players don't know, like, well, it's only four hours long, so we can only have so many combats, right? You can set this up to provide just a myriad of interesting choices for players to make. And it's really one of the great strengths of Cairn building. Mm -hmm. Last but not least, I think one of the cool things to do is to empower the players to choose the totem spirit for the Cairn. In my experience in the LARP, I had a brand new to werewolf and brand new to LARPing Thayerge who got chosen as the right master. And he himself really didn't have a great idea of like what was in the books. But again, because it was a LARP, other players did. So they came to him with their suggestions and their ideas and their advice. And I was able to feed in a few that players didn't think of based on the location of the Cairn and the city of Chicago. I was able to educate him enough so that he could make an informed and interesting decision. And I really recommend doing that. This is an easy opportunity for the storyteller to pass the ball off to the players and let them make a significant choice that will make a great impact on the game. And again, aside from just the respect and admiration that comes from being a right master, this is kind of the big perk, is getting to be like, all right, this is our totem, this is the flavor, this is going to color the rest of the game experience for us. And, you know, that'll drive a lot of conflict in a LARP over who's going to get to be right master kind of thing. So that's, I think, the last piece of advice I have on uh, making Right of the Cairn build really shine. Yeah, um, with that, I think we covered just about everything. And it yeah. looks like Shakes is getting a little antsy with us, so... Oh, yeah. For those of you troopers who are out time-stamping Bastet appearances. <laughs> <laughs> that was oh, nothing for your adoring fans. She's just perching stoically. Yep. <laughs> no love. <sighs> All right. But this was a fun episode. Mm-hmm. Had a great time. Join us next time. We're going to do what I think is a long overdue topic next time. I know in my experience, a lot of people will be like, I want to play werewolf, but I can't find a game. And there's the whole logistics of like, yeah, you can go to this, but very frequently it's just people aren't sold on the game. So what we're going to do next time, we're going to give you the sales pitch. This is for all those people who want to try to play werewolf and they're trying to recruit players. Why should you play Werewolf the Apocalypse? Mm-hmm. See you next time. Welcome to the Pintex Break Room. The next episode is not only about that. 50% construction is underway.